In May of 2006, mud began to uh, bubble up in an Indonesian rice paddy. And over the next few days, it became virtually a, a mud volcano, if you can imagine that. No one knows exactly why this happened. There was a recent earthquake and some people attributed to that. There had also been significant mining and drilling in the area over the decades. Suddenly, 6.4 million cubic feet of mud per day began pouring out of the ground. Now, cubic feet is difficult to imagine. So instead, imagine 13 Olympic-sized pools of mud pouring out of the ground per day in this small village. Over the course of the next four weeks, our next few weeks, there were four square miles of East Java that were covered in mud, consuming whole villages and displacing more than 40,000 people. This mud volcano still has not stopped. And even today, six to 700,000 cubic feet are pouring out and scientists estimate that it will be another 30 to maybe even a hundred years before it stops. Even with all of our modern technology, we can't do anything about it. It's an unstoppable force of mud. During, our, during the season of Lent, we've been looking at various prophetic passages. And while Matthew isn't traditionally a prophetic book, Jesus is sort of the archetypal prophet, the one in fact, that we most concern ourselves with during Holy Week. Now, previously in Jesus's ministry, he wasn't about splashy entrances or grand gestures to get attention. In fact, he asked people not to bring attention to him. The crowds attempt to anoint him as king, and he is said to have quietly slipped away. But in this entrance into Jerusalem, he seems to take every possible symbol, all of these various threads of hope from the Old Testament, and he begins to fasten them to himself. He is clearly identifying himself and his overall ministry to all of the pent up hopes and dreams that Israel had for a Messiah, the one who would come and rescue them from exile. Palm Sunday is the time where something radically changes in the life and ministry of Jesus. In moving into the city of Jerusalem in the way that he does, he is saying that he cannot be ignored, he cannot be explained away, he cannot be disregarded or tuned out. He comes into Jerusalem as an unstoppable force. And Matthew tells us that the whole town was stirred. Why were they stirred? Let's look at a few of the characters or story elements that Matthew uses to make up the scene. First, we have the donkey. It really stands out, doesn't it? If you're coming into a city as the anointed king, which is exactly what Jesus is doing, a donkey seems like the last animal that you'd choose to ride in on, a war horse, perhaps a chariot, maybe even an elephant, at least it's big and imposing. These were powerful or would have been powerful, impressive vehicles of entry 
It would have got everyone's attention. But Jesus rides in on a very ordinary beast of burden. Now, when the president travels abroad, how does he travel? Even domestically, he travels in style on Air Force One. Advanced teams plan everything. They have sharpshooters on the roof. They have decoy vehicles, which lead to state dinners, tuxedos, photo ops, and hundreds of reporters and staff scurrying around to follow the president's every move. So imagine him going to a foreign country and him riding into the city in an old Volvo. I mean, a real beater. Either he's lost it completely or he's doing something strategic and announcing that as the most powerful person on the planet, that he or maybe one day she doesn't need an entourage. They don't need the pomp and circumstance. They are coming to say, I'm here to meet with you. And I'm content to arrive in the lowliest of ways. In a strange way, wouldn't this sort of show of humility be the ultimate show of power? Here, Jesus is taking this humble mode of transport to demonstrate his unstoppable power that he's unassailable. So much so that he doesn't ride into Jerusalem with bodyguards, even though he knows his life is in danger. He doesn't come in with war horses and swords swinging, but on a very average domesticated animal. By the way, this is one of the prophetic threads from the Hebrew Bible that Jesus chooses to attach to his arrival that Matthew points out for the rather slow among us who are reading this. Instead of the the splendor of Solomon that Matthew could have pointed to, the military power of David, he fastens onto Jesus one of the the lowliest prophetic images about Messiah, that this new king will come in on a donkey. So that's one character. We also have the city and the temple. They are both part of the story. This march into the city of Jerusalem begins a week in Jesus' life that all of the gospel writers give an inordinate amount of time to. We really don't know much about Jesus' childhood, next to nothing about his adolescent years or his years working as a carpenter. But Matthew gives eight chapters of his gospel to this one week, beginning here in Matthew 21. Luke gives us six chapters, and John devotes nearly half of his book to this one week. They're saying to the reader, look at this. This is important. And this week, particularly this entrance, is full of symbolism that goes really deep into the Old Testament, back into the movement of God's people out of the wilderness into the promised land and the setting up of their king and their kingdom. And in a dramatic way, Jesus is, in a sense, recapitulating that story. He's coming, you see, not only to the seat of political power, 
but to the capital of Israel where the temple was. The temple was the sign of God's presence in Israel. And Jesus goes directly to it to cleanse it and to claim that the temple, the throne room of God himself is in fact his throne room to cleanse. You now know that God is with you. This whole story is saying not because of a building, but because God himself is with you. God is establishing his reign in the person of his son, his kingdom in a specific place. And who notices this? Who streams in to Jerusalem? The lame, the blind, and children. Those without stature, those without cultural power, the overlooked, the invisible, they come to Jesus. They want to be part of his kingdom where they can experience belonging, where they can have worth, where the king recognizes them, receives them, and defends them. The blind, those without sight, they see Jesus. Children, inconveniences to grown-up religion. They stop and they worship. And the lame, the cursed, religious rejects, they come to God's son and he receives them and he heals them. There's the city and the temple. There's the donkey. There's the lame, the children and the blind. And then there's a song, a song that's sort of a character of the story. Did you notice the song? It begins with Hosanna, which basically means God saves. It is a cry. It is a song of the heart and an acknowledgement that this is happening right before their very eyes, that Hosanna has come. You see, this has been the cry of Israel for thousands of years, through 400 years in Egypt, 40 in the desert, through the divided monarchy and a succession of terrible, no good kings, through the exile, through the return to the promised land, through all of these events, Jews sang Hosanna. And the crowds go ahead of Jesus singing Hosanna in the highest and singing the phrase from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He, they are saying, is the one. And now is the time. Jesus, Hosanna, he is here. The lame get it. The blind see it. Children understand it. And the crowds are starting to get it. He's the king who comes to rule, but to rule with grace. He is also the priest who has come to atone, the one who will go to the cross, who will make one final sacrifice, obviating the need for any future temple sacrifice. 
debts canceled, prisoners set free, and sinners rescued. Jesus also comes as a prophet, the prophet, in fact, the prophet who will proclaim the day and the time of God's favor. The day and the time and the event and the person miraculously present in Jesus. On Palm Sunday, you see everyone gets to see who Jesus truly is. It's not just his disciples. It's not just the small following that has been slowly growing, but now everyone gets to see who he is. No more small ball. No more don't tell anyone. No more whispers. He rides in on a donkey into the very center of the religious and cultural life of Israel and announces his kingship. He's an unstoppable force. But there's one final character, isn't there? There's probably a few more, but there's one that we need to contend with before we close. And that's the religious people, the moral people, the good people, the spiritual power brokers who become angry because children were singing Hosanna to the son of David as if Jesus were him. The religious people, they could see what was happening, but they have a very different response than the lame and the children and the blind. They could see what was happening, but reasoned if they didn't put a stop to it, the crowds might assume that this nobody on a donkey is the real deal. And so here the unstoppable force runs into the immovable object of the religious establishment. And they are, as Richard read, indignant. They are always the least happy. Aren't they when the marginalized are empowered? They're always the least happy about the coming of justice. It's always a threat to their system and to their power. It's easy to talk about their opposition because it's so prominent in the gospels. But it's also easy to talk about because it's easy to externalize this. It's easy to objectify them dehumanize them as if we don't have some of the same tendencies in our hearts, as if we clearly would be on the right side if we were taking part in that ceremony or observing it that day. So maybe we should ask, where do, where do we fit in as a character in the story? Are we with the crowds and their growing enthusiasm? Are we with the lame, the blind, the children who somehow miraculously see the truth that has come forth in Jesus? Or do we side with the religious class, the good people? Do we have immovable objects in our lives? Maybe we're not intentionally opposing Jesus, but are there situations, are there patterns of life that you know are unhealthy, but which you never really get around to addressing? to dealing with, to asking God to be present in the midst of? 
Maybe in your life, there are relationships that are constantly in a state of stress. And you know, you know that you could bend a little bit. You know, maybe that you, you should bend a little bit, maybe even slightly. You know that you could apologize. You know that you should forgive, but you refuse to do it. <coughs> Is that refusal not an immovable object in your life? Or maybe we spend a lot of time at work dwelling upon personal slight, upon threats to our standing in the hierarchy, in the flowchart on the office wall. Maybe we slowly nurse a grudge. Maybe we we choose to stay angry rather than to let it slowly dissipate. And so what happens is instead of inviting God's presence in, we stay locked into this sort of negative (coughs) gravitational entanglement with them. The list could be long. What are the immovable objects in your life? In all of these situations, here's what Palm Sunday tells us, that there's no such thing as an immovable object in your life. Nothing can ultimately stand in the way of the Messiah when it's time to enter Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us in relaying this story that Jesus continues to be on the move, on the move even today into your life toward all of your immovable objects. That mud volcano that began spewing mud at 6.4 million cubicle feet a day. It started and everyone thought nothing will stop this. You could only move out of its way. And that's how a lot of things feel in our lives. We've given up hope to really deal with them or wrestle them down. We've given up hope that things can change. Things just feel so rooted and solid and stationary. But that mud volcano is now down to less than 700,000 cubic feet a day. Now, that's a lot. But it's a lot less. And eventually, its power will wind down because there's only so much volume of mud pent up under the ground. Friends, so much of what's going on in our lives feels so powerful. And the reality is that some of it is. Some of it is overwhelming. Some of it is beyond our individual strength to deal with. It feels so powerful, it feels unstoppable or immovable to switch or maybe realign our metaphors for just a moment. But the only truly unstoppable force in our lives is spiritual, and it is God himself. And he comes into Jerusalem in the person of his son, the city that kills its prophets. And he marches into the city as a conquering king who will die on behalf of his people. He lets evil do its worst to him. He allows all the forces of oppression and exclusion 
and self-righteousness and fear to be expended, to run down as they laid claim to his life. And therefore, Palm Sunday can turn into Good Friday, which gives way to Easter, where we are told that Jesus rises again and that he is more powerful than all of those destructive forces, that he is powerful, more powerful than all of those things in your life that feel right now immovable. Because we are told that even death could not stand against him. Death, the truly immovable object in all of our lives, it is yet moved by Jesus, at least undermined. It is conquered by the unstoppable force of his crucifixion and resurrection. And now, if, if you believe that, you have no reason to believe that he can't bring signs of resurrection in your own life. That those relationships, those fears, those enemies, those patterns, those demands that seem to take ownership of your life, you don't have to believe any longer that they are simply there to stay. No. Hosanna is the cry of faith. It's the cry of hope that God saves. It is a cry of the heart and an acknowledgement that it is happening right before our very eyes. And so friends, our task this week is to choose to live as if that is true. Hosanna, let's pray. Father, would you be with us just as you have during this long season of COVID, this long season where life seems to have shut down at times and life has certainly taken on a sense of the uncontrollable. Father, I pray that you would let us realize that life is uncontrollable, that even in a post-COVID world where the sun comes out and the birds chirp and rainbows are everywhere, that we still cannot control our life. We cannot control the future. So Father, I pray that we would rest instead, not upon our ingenuity or on our power, but upon yours. The power that is present in the gospel, the power that was clearly present in Jesus, May it be given to us in all of the places that we need it, not out of selfishness, but so that we can serve, so that we can give ourselves away to a needy world. And we pray on behalf of that world, and we pray because Jesus has called us to pray, and we pray in his name. Amen.